I am starting to believe that Alec Murdoch does not follow the rules. The press is going to fight to have cameras in the courtroom for Brian Koberger. Now, everyone knows finders keepers, losers weepers. We learned that as a kid. Well, except when the government loses the item. We have an update on the Castle Doctrine that we talked about the other day and our dumb criminal of the day. I think this is an example of a true hate crime. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment. Hit that little bell. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply type in Crime Talk. Now, let's go ahead and open the record and begin the docket for August 31st of 2023, the last day of August. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I am starting to think that Alec Murdoch doesn't think the rules apply to him. That's right. As you know, he's um, obviously been convicted of killing his wife and son and been disbarred and going to plead guilty to stealing and being involved involved in um, uh, wire fraud in federal court. Yep, I'm starting to think this guy just doesn't think the rules apply to him. And now we know he doesn't think the rules apply to him even in prison. So Alec Murdoch has been... Um, convicted, I guess you could say, it's an administrative proceedings of internal disciplinary charges in prison after he conducted a news interview and using another inmate's PIN number to make that outgoing phone call. Now, the convicted killer is serving two consecutive life sentences, as we noted, for you know the death of his wife and son, Paul, at their hunting estate, uh, Moselle, there in uh, South Carolina. Now, the interview and the information that he gave to his lawyer, apparently on August 9th, was for this docu-series uh, that's going to be on Fox Nation tomorrow. It is called The Fall of the House of Murdoch, which is actually set to air on August 31st, which is actually today. The incident report filed in the uh, prison states that uh, Mr. Alec Murdoch willfully and knowingly abused his telephone privileges to communicate with the news and media for his own gain. Murdoch had a disciplinary hearing for the new charges on August 28th, and now he has lost his telephone, tablet, and canteen privileges for the next 30 days. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, yes, telephone used to be the only way you communicate with somebody on the inside, of course, except the good old-fashioned way of handwriting a letter. Well, now everybody has tablets so they can email you know, and watch various things on TV. It's limited, but it's new. It's coming. It's going to be everywhere soon. And canteen, of course, is where you can buy soup and candy bars and extra items that you need to make your quality of life while you're in prison just a little more comfortable. Well, the South Carolina Department of Corrections has stated inmates in the custody of the South Carolina Department of Corrections are not allowed to do interviews. Interview policy is rooted in victims' rights and is long-standing, they state, and the department believes that the victim of a crime should not have to see or hear the person who victimized them or their family member on the news. So inmates lose the privilege of speaking to the news media when they enter the South Carolina Department of Corrections. The department also states that they will determine when 
and if inmate Murdoch will earn the opportunity to be issued a tablet again. That's right. You got to earn that privilege back. It's like you're being a small child there. Oh, that's right. You can't behave like an adult on the outside, so they send you to the inside where you're treated like a child. The department also added that the uh, charges involve providing information to be delivered to the news media for an interview and also using a fellow inmate's PIN number to make the telephone call. The statement also states that Mr. Murdoch provided the interview information to his attorney through a legal call. Remember, legal calls are not monitored on the inmate phone system per the attorney-client privilege. Oh, Anyway, the attorney, Jim Griffin, recorded Murdoch reading the information and then provided it to the media. Mr. Murdoch's attorney was also sent a letter by the South Carolina Department of Corrections warning that his actions may jeopardize this phone call, his phone calls with his client in the future. The letter states your actions, whether you intended or not, assisted Mr. Murdoch in violating our policy and could jeopardize your telephonic communications with him in the future. Attorney calls are provided to assist with legal claims, not for other unrelated purposes. Murdoch is uh, currently in protective custody at an undisclosed state prison. We'll see how that continues to go for Mr. Murdoch. Somehow I think this is not his first rules violation. Now, in the uh, Fox documentary that's coming out, uh, Alex's surviving son, Buster Murdoch, has uh, broke his silence to uh, say that he does not believe his father, Alex, killed his brother and mother. I know, Buster, if that's what gets you through the day, you just keep believing it. Well, and Buster also denied having a gay relationship with murdered school friend uh, Stephen Smith or any involvement in his death. Next on the docket, Brian Koberger. The press is going to fight the attempts by the defense to keep cameras out of the courtroom. Good for them. So a loosely organized group of news organizations plans to fight an attempt by the uh, murder suspects defense team to have cameras removed from the court hearings. Now, obviously, Brian Koberger faces the death penalty if he's convicted of killing Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zena Kernodal. Needless to say, this case has uh, had significant attention since the murders last fall near the University of Idaho campus. Now, Koberger's defense team has previously argued against journalists accessing uh, court hearings, calling the media attention twisted and grotesque. In a recent filing, uh, the defense team accused the media organizations of violating a judge's order not to focus solely on their client and saying images of their client in the pretrial hearing will poison the jury pool. Now, the attorneys for the group, which includes um, many news organizations throughout the country, have filed a motion to intervene, asking that the group's voice be heard in arguing against the motion. The group of these news media organizations include other local and national news companies, as well as state and local organizations. The uh, news organizations have previously argued that the gag order in this case was overly broad and limited public access to the proceedings. And at the time of those filings, the judge reserved judgment on allowing cameras in the courtroom, saying they were allowed now, but that he could change his mind at any time. Obviously, the press believes that the media access can be done 
responsibly and responsibly, and especially in death penalty cases, is necessary to ensure that criminal proceedings are done fairly and in the public eye. The uh, media group points to an article mentioned in the defense motion in which the defense says that Fox News strictly focuses strictly on Koberger. The coalition points out that in the story, photos also showed Koberger's attorney entering the courtroom, the prosecutors, and the murder victims, and even a still photo from a previous traffic stop involving Mr. Koberger. Attorneys point to several other stories done in national and local media that don't focus solely on Koberger, but instead include images of the victim and the video of the other participants in the court hearings. Now, the judge has scheduled a hearing on this matter for Friday. We'll see how it goes. Obviously, it's no secret as to what my position is. I would have cameras in every courtroom across the country. Shouldn't be a big deal. Let's face it. These attorneys for the defense, Mr. Koberger's attorneys, are doing their job. Let's face it. They want to have the cameras in there. They're just doing what they have to do, but they want them there. It works better for everybody else. You're going to see better lawyering if the uh, proceedings are televised. Although I guess we didn't really see that um, <laughs> in the Lori Vallow case. Uh, but, you know, there's always a shot. And we deserve to see, the public deserves to see what's taking place. And why would the government, the judges, the court system, the prosecutors, the public defenders not want the world to see what they're doing, and how the judicial system is being executed uh, in this process. What? You mean the judges don't want to be criticized? The public defenders don't want to be criticized? Maybe the prosecutors don't want to be criticized? Oh, maybe that's really what it boils down to. It's not really about keeping everything focused just on Brian Koberger. No, it's so we don't focus on the prosecutors and the attorneys and the judges to see if they're doing their rights and if they're doing their jobs correctly. All right. We all have heard the saying, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? They teach you that in law school, I think. And they also teach you that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, not really. But let me give you an example. A Connecticut man could face prison time for grand larceny after he found a bag containing $5,000 in a parking lot in a bank. Now, Robert Withington um, thought that he had won the lottery because he found the cash in a parking lot outside of a bank this year, back in May. Well, it actually, the bag had been dropped while being transported to a bank by the town's tax department. So according to the uh, police lieutenant who's handling the investigation, says that the bag had been clearly marked with the bank's insignia alongside numerous documents inside identifying the cash as belonging to the town's tax department. Well, Mr. Willington has contended that he didn't steal the money, that it had been abandoned, and didn't notice anything inside the bag indicating who the money belonged to. Mr. Willington stated, it's not like this was planned. Everything was in the moment, and it was like I hit the lottery. That was it. I walked out onto the parking lot, saw something on the ground. There was no one around, so I picked it up. I didn't steal it. If I knew it was wrong in the first place, I would have given it right back. I didn't think it was. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Well, the police said that an employee in the town's tax collections office 
couldn't find the bag after arriving at the bank to make the deposit during regular business hours, according to the uh, police uh, statement. Now, over the next several months, the detectives obtained search warrants, reviewed multiple surveillance videos from local businesses, and conducted numerous interviews before learning the bag had been inadvertently dropped on the ground outside of the bank, and Withington had actually picked it up. Well, when the police eventually interviewed Mr. Withington, they said he acknowledged being at the bank that day and taking the bag. He told them that he believed he had no obligation to return the bag to its rightful owner, which I don't think he does. He was charged Friday with third-degree larceny, a felony punished by up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine. Mr. Withington now has been arrested and released on bond, and he has a court appearance on September 5th. So, ladies and gentlemen, what do we say? There's a difference between legality and morality. Morally, he should have tried to find out who that bag belonged to. But if you find a bag in the street, in a park, in a parking lot, it's deemed abandoned. Maybe if the town employee that works for the tax department was scrambling around looking for the bag. Have you seen my bag? Then you can say maybe it wasn't abandoned. I think the bigger issue here is why is the town employee not being fired for dropping the bag in the first place? Well, we can't have the town employee look bad. Let's, we'll charge somebody with a crime. Are you kidding me? This is the biggest bunch of horse dung I've seen in a long time. Let Mr. Willington go, fire the employee, and the police should say, you know, when you guys drop your money, Mr. Government people, you don't get to have somebody else charged to cover up your incompetence. How's that? Next, an update on the Castle Doctrine story we brought you the other day. Remember we brought you the story the other day of a shooting in South Carolina neighborhood They claimed the life of a 20-year-old college student from Connecticut, and uh, that shooting has been deemed justifiable homicide by the local police. Hear, hear. Now, the Columbia Police Department said they consulted with the solicitor's office and determined that no charges will be filed against the homeowner who killed the University of South Carolina junior Nicholas Donofrio early Saturday morning. Now, police state that the homeowner's name will not be released in the course of this investigation either. And the police determined that Donofrio mistakenly went to the wrong address, according to the police. He attempted to enter the front door by repeatedly knocking, bagging, banging, and kicking while manipulating the door handle. Now, while the female resident was on the phone with the police calling uh, that they calling the police, The man in the house retrieved a firearm from inside the home. He fired a single shot when Donofrio broke a window that was embedded in the front door and reached through for the doorknob. Obviously, the bullet struck Donofrio in the upper body, and now he's dead. Toxicology reports have been ordered, but they have not been uh, come back yet. But my guess is he's going to be drunker than a skunk. Well, South Carolina, like many states, recognizes what is known as the Castle Doctrine, meaning that a person does not have to retreat before using deadly force to defend themselves or 
if they are in their own home. Now, police said the decision not to file charges was based on the Protection of Persons and Property Act. And under the law, a person is presumed to have a reasonable fear of imminent peril of death or great bodily injury to defend himself or another person when someone is in the process of unlawfully and forcefully entering or has unlawfully and forcibly entered a dwelling residence or occupied vehicle. The law further states that a person who uses deadly force as permitted by the provisions of this article or another applicable provision of the law is justified in using deadly force and is immune from criminal prosecution and civil action for the use of the deadly force. That's all pursuant to state law. If your state does not have the Castle Doctrine, you need to tell your state legislators to get it. That means you hear about those crazy stories where somebody breaks into a house, homeowners injure them, and then the burglar sues the homeowner. See, this law in South Carolina says they're immune from not only criminal responsibility, but civil liability as well. That's just common sense, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? But yet most states don't want to follow common sense. All right. We talked the other day about hate crimes. Well, let me give you one today. It's in our dumb criminal of the day. A Florida man is behind bars on battery and burglary charges after allegedly attacking his former girlfriend who taunted him via text messages about having, well, a small penis. Police allege that Rashad McGriff punched and choked the victim early yesterday after showing up uninvited at uh, their home in Florida. Now, Mr. McGriff, who has a lengthy rap sheet and is currently on probation, following a conviction for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. That doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen, because everybody knows people that aren't supposed to have guns don't get guns because that would be breaking the law, right? Well, Mr. McGriff, (laughs) according to the victim, told police is the father of three of the victim's children. Uh, Investigators say that the uh, woman was in bed when Mr. McGriff got into the house, um, which he has no reason to uh, be there and is not invited there. And uh, then Mr. McGriff then allegedly punched the woman in the face, choked her, which obstructed her ability to breathe temporarily. That's called assault, but the choking statute. Anyway, the woman who was uh, bleeding from the bridge of her nose uh, when the police arrived told the police that she had texted Mr. McGriff of someone else's and advised Rashad that he had a little penis. (laughs) I think that's a hate crime, ladies and gentlemen. Now, certainly it doesn't warrant going over and hitting a woman because you never, ever, ever, ever hit a woman. Um, Maybe not even in the heat of passion when somebody questions the size of your appendages. But needless to say, Mr. McGriff, even though he didn't respond to those texts, he went over there and took care of it himself. And now, Mr. McGriff, well, not only do you have a small penis, now you're going back to prison. All right. (laughs) Like, seriously, dude, you're on a $16,000 bond now. You got to go back for court for an arraignment on the battery and burglary case back in October. And um, not to mention you're on probation already, so you're going to prison. I guess you can just show everybody in prison that you don't have a small... (laughs) Anyway, Mr. McGriff can have no contact with the victim, um, and she wants a protection order because Mr. McGriff has stated, quote, I will kill you, 
uh, end quote. Uh, records show that the woman has uh, previously sued Mr. McGriff three times for failure to pay child support. Um, that court hearing is also scheduled for October 12th. I wonder which one he'll make or if he'll make both. All right, that's all we have for you today. Thanks for uh, watching, and we'll see you next time on Crime Talk. Small paper. <laughs> Let me come over and beat you up. <laughs>